I want you to know if you are uh, someone who calls the Oaks home, then uh, you're probably excited that we are back into the book of Mark. We've, over the past three years, been looking at the book of Mark kind of through January to May, and we will be finishing up the book of Mark on Easter this year. So uh, yeah, so it's been, it's been a fun journey. Uh, we're diving back into Mark, and I almost felt like after going through Romans for a while, I was like, oh yeah, we get back into like gospel narrative, you know, typically some fairly simple stuff to study and then to preach, and then, you know, walking through Mark 13 on week one, and it's like, all right, end times, eschatology, you know, how, how all things will uh, come to the end and the Lord will return. And it's like, all right, we're, we're just going to dive into the deep end week one, but it's going to be a lot of fun. I uh, also want you to know, just as you look through the things that are in your seat, you have a card that uh, has Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 on it. Uh, one of our creative team members each week has been creating a card, and then we've been printing it and then putting it in your seat so that you can use this as you know, something to meditate on throughout the week, maybe uh, a scripture to memorize. Uh, our very own Hannah Cast designed this one. Yeah. Um, and so it's also in the app. If you're, you know, looking for a way to memorize scripture throughout the week, you can download the Oaks app and then go to scripture memory. One of the things that I love to do whenever I have a card like this or verses like this to help memorize it is just to kind of pray through it. And so um, that prayer for me looks something like, you know, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And just saying, Lord, help me to trust you. Uh, help me to trust in the Lord. I recognize that often um, I trust in other things. I trust in uh, maybe, you know, my past experiences that would help me to accomplish something that, you know, I think I can do on my own. I think, you know, maybe I find my security in, uh, you know, bank account or, you know, uh, the, the friendships I have. And, you know, maybe you just begin to like talk to the Lord about that, to trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Maybe that's confessing to the Lord that uh, while we might, may not stand completely in our own understanding, sometimes we have a tendency to lean on it and just say, well, maybe I know what's best. Uh, what was that? Uh, you know, it's like, oh, no. Um, but, it, but as you begin to kind of work through Scripture and inhale Scripture, exhale prayer, you're, you're learning to engage God with His own Word and, and pray it back to Him. And I've found that to be a really helpful practice for meditating on Scripture, for memorizing Scripture. So I hope you'll take that and, uh, and make that one of your aims this year is to memorize a passage of scripture every single week when we gather or at the very least to, uh, to put this somewhere where you'll be thinking about it throughout the week and reflecting on it. Um, also want you to know if there are a couple extras on the seats beside you, maybe you want to grab this, write a note on the back of it and send it as a postcard to someone. So think about how you can use this to be an encouragement to others, um, to, to use it to engage with God throughout the week. Now, as we consider Mark chapter... 13, I want to ask the question, how often do you think about the future? And whenever I say that, I'm not talking about the future as in, you know, next week or even next year. I'm talking about how often do you think about the impact of your life or perhaps what could even take place 10 years from now, 25 years from now, 50 years from now. Let's really stretch it. A thousand years from now, 10,000 years from now. Well, there was a computer engineer named Danny Hillis, and, you know, he basically became frustrated with our society's tendency to think too short term. Uh, we're, we're so easily amused by 10 second reels, and we want all of our food to just be microwaved really quick because everything needs to happen fast. And, you know, we, we, don't, we don't really tend to think long term 
especially not 10,000 years long term. And so he had this idea to create a clock that would be a 10,000 year clock. One of the hands on this clock would only move once a year whenever each new year began. There would actually be a century hand on this clock that would only move, you know, every 10 decades because he wanted people to begin thinking long term to think about what, what will the world be like a thousand, five, five thousand, ten thousand years from now. An investor heard his, his plan, saw some of the blueprints, got really excited about it and contributed $45 million to the project. It was Jeff Bezos. And if Jeff Bezos hears your idea and likes it, then that's a great way to, to get your project completed. And so somewhere in the plains of Texas, they found this three-story cave where they are creating this massive clock. I mean, it's just amazing. You can actually walk through it, spiral staircase. I mean, the hands are just ginormous in this thing. And it's slowly clicking as time rolls by. I think this helps us think for a moment about the reality that we will all be somewhere 10,000 years from now. As often is the case, I think that our culture rightly maybe diagnoses the problem, short-term thinking, not, not worried about the future, but maybe wrongly prescribes the solution. But what we need is not just to build a giant clock in a cave. What we need is to come before God's word and humbly submit to the voice of God. What does he say about 10,000 years from now? How does that cause us to, to think through our lives. Uh, there's something within us. It is unshakable, regardless of your worldview. There is something within every single person hardwired in by the hand of God where you just, you just can't help but feel like there are longings and desires, this ache that can't be satisfied by 80 years of life here. It can't, can't fit into it all. What do you do with that? It causes you to, to look elsewhere. Uh, the, the difference here, whenever we consider just uh, the fact that God has created us uh, with, with an everlasting capacity in relationship with him, causes us to think about how maybe right now uh, we have a tendency to think about the immediate and not the ultimate. Now, what's the difference between thinking about the immediate and the ultimate? Well, I think uh, in that short-sighted thinking, it could lead you to two conclusions as a non-Christian or a Christian that could be absolutely catastrophic for you. I, th I think first, if you are consumed by the immediate and not the ultimate, and you're not a believer, perhaps you could be deceived by a false sense of security. And, and so you would say, well, you know, I've got some really great friends. I like where I live. I have a steady stream of income. I'm fairly healthy. Like everything is good without considering the fact that one day you will stand before the Lord of all creation and give an account for your life. And in that moment, that false sense of security will disintegrate. And the good news of scripture is that this king who will be judge offered his life for you, that you could not have a false sense of security, but a real one who has a name, and that name is Jesus. To think about the immediate and not the ultimate as a Christian could perhaps lead you to a false sense of despair or discouragement. Maybe you think, well, man, if, if this is it, then, you know, like things just aren't going that well. Maybe you feel the pain of a chronic illness or you see the suffering going on in the world around you and you're just driven to despair. 
maybe even into depression. Maybe you think, you know what, I'm, I'm not there, but I just kind of feel like my life is mundane. I just kind of, you know, go through these routines and I love the Lord and I want to make my life matter. But like, like does, this, does my life really matter whenever I'm beginning a, a fresh semester at school and, you know, I'm, I'm working through this major or, you know, you're a mom who's wiping a runny nose and you're like, like does, does this day like really matter in the grand scheme of all eternity? And Mark 13 would say, yeah. Like what, like what you do in the home, the conversations that you have, the, the actions that uh, take place throughout your day will echo through eternity. That the Lord would be so kind and gracious to take what may feel like a mundane life and infuse it with a glorious purpose indwelled by the Holy Spirit that it will have an everlasting and eternal impact. You can't get that anywhere else. You only get that from, from hearing the words of Christ. And so what we find in Mark 13 is this sobering reality that, that this structure, the temple, just kind of this thing that represented this impregnable force would one day be destroyed and yet Christ, the cornerstone, would remain. It's a reminder to us that many things in this world will not last, but what is done in the name of Christ will. Here we're going to see warnings about the difficulty that comes to those who follow Christ, that they might even lose their life for his name's sake. And yet, even if that be the case, we persevere with hope, knowing that those who lose their life for the name of Christ gain it. In their last breath here is their first in his presence. So with all that being the case, how then shall we live? I believe that Mark 13 would point us to see this truth, that the return of Christ encourages us to wait with patience, to proclaim the gospel message, and to persevere with hope. The return of Christ encourages us to wait with patience, to proclaim the gospel message, and to persevere with hope. Now, it's been a while since we've looked at the book of Mark, and one of the things that we like to do every time we uh, look again at a new book or look at a book for the first time is something we call reading the envelope, all right? So before we get into chapters and verses, we just kind of want to say, okay, who wrote this? Um, what is the, who is the audience that was receiving this letter? And then what is the application? So those three A's, author, audience, application. Now, who's the author? Well, it's Mark, and he was kind of an intern of the Apostle Peter. And so uh, most of this is written from Peter's perspective. That's why we get like a lot of inside information here. Now, the audience that's receiving this um, is receiving this about 30 years after the resurrection of Christ. And it's primarily Gentile followers of Christ who were not from a Jewish background who were uh, in Rome under the reign of the Emperor Nero. So they're facing a lot of persecution, which is going to be very timely for especially the things that they will hear in Mark 13. Now, the, the application of this book is for us to see, for everyone who reads it to see, that Jesus is the Messiah. And chapters one through eight are seeing him as the eternal king. It is behold your king, which would have been extremely encouraging whenever you're living under the persecution of a tyrant king. And then the remaining chapters, 9 through 16, really point to um, the reality that, uh, that, that Christ is the suffering servant. Would have been very comforting for you to, to know that Christ has suffered for you. And, and in the midst of persecution, he is now suffering with you 
to enable you to endure. And, and so with that being the case where we, uh, where we pick up this morning, it's Mark chapter 13. Now, this is one of the most hotly debated, uh, you know, texts in regard to end times. And we're not going to get to like a lot of the juicy stuff this week. So there's a little teaser to come back next week and the week after that. Uh, now, what, what I want you to know is uh, this is called the Olivet Discourse. Um, Jesus gives it on the Mount of Olives. And uh, perhaps a, a really general principle to keep in mind whenever you study anything like this, um, I, I picked this up from one of my favorite pastors to listen to, Alistair Begg. He says that the main things are always the plain things, and the plain things are always the main things. Right? Love it. Rhymes, you know. The main things are always the plain things, the plain things are always the main things. What does he mean? He says, Scripture is clear. Uh, God wants you to know Him. There are some things that are hard to understand, but the main things in Scripture, the, the atonement of Christ, his substitutionary death, uh, the fact that Christ will come back, these are main things. And for that reason, they're very plain. And if something in Scripture isn't immediately plain, if, if faithful interpreters of the Bible can't all agree on something, then it's not it's not a main thing. It's not like an issue that determines your salvation. It doesn't decide whether Christians can fellowship in the same church body or not. And so with that being the case, I want you to know that in, in chapter 13, there are kind of three predominant views that you can have. Um, as, as he talks about the destruction of the temple and, you know, some of the things that are going to take place in the last days, the coming of the Son of Man, uh, some people would say that all of this took place in 70 AD whenever the temple was actually destroyed. And they have interpretive ways to do that. Other people would say all of this is forthcoming. And then other people would say, you know, I think some of this has happened. Some of it, you know, looking back on history, seems like it took place. And then some of it obviously hasn't happened yet because um, it's just really hard to see how that has happened. Uh, typically, that's how a lot of prophecy works. Think about a passage like Isaiah 61 where you read, you know, that the Messiah will come and it will be the year of the Lord's favor and the day of God's vengeance. And looking at that from a distance, it kind of seems like that's all going to happen at one time. Uh, similar to the way that whenever you're coming through the cut in the hill, you see our city skyline and it looks like the PNC building is like right next to Carew Tower. Like if you were walking, you would just like, you know, step from one straight to the other. And then what happens if you actually get into downtown and you begin walking? Well, you realize these things aren't like right next to each other. I actually have to climb this, you know, big hill on Vine Street to go from one to the other. Well, Christ comes and we see Isaiah 61 is partially fulfilled. It is the year of the Lord's favor. Christ has come. He's bringing salvation. And yet, what does he promise? That there will be a day of judgment that the day of the Lord's vengeance is still to come. And so um, I think that perhaps this is another helpful way to say there are parts of this passage that take place and we can look back and see them. There are parts of this passage that are still to come and, um, and we'll work through that together as uh, we say the main thing here is not trying to chart this all out on you know, a, a nice little diagram or graph, but really to say that Christ will return uh, and that in the meantime, as he indwells us with the Holy Spirit, he will give us the ability to wait patiently, to proclaim the gospel message, and to persevere with great hope. That is what is plain in the text, and so that is what is going to be the main thing that we talk about this morning. Now, as we look at Mark 13, 1 through 13, uh, I'll give you kind of the structure of where we're going, just so you can kind of 
so I don't catch you off surprise uh, or catch you, catch you by surprise. Uh, we're going to look at the conversation that happens in, in verses 1 through 2. Then we're going to look at the preparation that Christ gives for his disciples as they consider these things. And then uh, three exhortations just for you as you live this week, uh, knowing how to apply Mark 13 to your life. So uh, pick up with me in verse 1. We're just going to read all the way through 13. The word of God says this, And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit." And brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The first thing I want you to see in this passage is the conversation. Here we find both the present beauty of the temple and the promised destruction of the temple. As Jesus and his disciples here are leaving the temple, uh, we recognize that as we look at Passion Week, this is just days before Christ will be crucified. Uh, this is most likely Tuesday or Wednesday in Passion Week, all right? And Christ will be crucified on Friday. So, so everything is kind of, the, the pace is picking up. Things are happening, happening rapidly here. It is soon the time that the words of Jesus in John 2.19 will be fulfilled whenever he said to the religious rulers uh, that this, this temple will be destroyed, but in three days I will raise it up. They didn't fully understand. They said, well, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you think you're going to raise it up in three days? What do you mean by that? And that would soon become clear to his disciples whenever they recognize he is saying that he is the temple and that he himself would be raised in three days. Now, at the beginning of chapter 13, we find that he is leaving the temple. A lot has taken place since they've been in the temple. He's been in the temple since the end of chapter 11. And, uh, you know, he told the parable of the, you know, wicked tenants and the servant and, you know, the master who sent his son and they killed his son. Um, you know, things take place where he's challenged by, you know, different political views and they ask, you know, do you pay taxes to Caesar or not? Uh, they, they see the poor widow give everything that she has and she's praised. So a lot has taken place in the temple. A lot that you would think like the disciples might want to talk about as they leave the temple. And here we find Jesus leaving the temple for the last time. It's reminiscent of, you know, the book of Ezekiel where you see the spirit of God leave the temple. It's kind of an indictment on what has taken place there. And as they're leaving, 
uh, one of the disciples, un- unnamed here, looks to Jesus and says, wow, what wonderful buildings. Look how big these stones are. And, and you wonder, like, what, like, what's going on? Like, like he, he's, just, he's not a tourist. He would have been very familiar with these things. And he, he's just like, man, look at this. You know, I mean, I like to think that people say similar things about our pipe and drape when they leave the rec center each week. Like, wow, like wooden spandex. Like who would have thought that's a thing? <laughs> Maybe not. We make it work though, right? One of the disciples, he's like, look how big these stones are. And, and looking at history, we recognize we probably would have said the same thing. I mean, this temple was just magnificent. I think I have a picture of it for you. Um, It took up a total of 35 acres. It was like one-fifth of the size of Jerusalem. You know, this temple was built by, you know, Solomon during his kingship. And, you know, then uh, it was Babylon, the Babylonians, they, you know, toppled it in 587. It was rebuilt by Ezra and uh, just, you know, magnificent. Uh, It was desecrated by Antiochus Epiphanes in 167 BC. Then it was reconsecrated kind of by the Maccabeans through the, you know, uh, Maccabean dynasty. And then uh, you have kind of this period where Herod comes on the scene and he, he wants to just make it magnificent. Um, not so much because he loved the Jews, but kind of because he wanted to leave a monument in his own name. And so about 15 years before the birth of Jesus, he began kind of creating just this huge temple complex. And so the temple was already there, but then he just like keeps adding to it and, you know, making it bigger and bigger. And, uh, you know, by, by the end of its destruction, which, or end of its construction, which was 64 AD, so uh, just a few years before it would then be destroyed, um, it was just magnificent. I mean, one of the, the great wonders of the world. People say that the pillars were so large, um, made out of a single stone, that it would take three men with outstretched arms to wrap around the, the pillars that were in this complex completely. Um, it, as you look at the picture, kind of the, the whole area outside was the you know, place where Gentiles could be. And then kind of that inner area where you see those large columns, those were um, like lamps. The uh, women and men who were Jewish could be there. And then as you enter in, that's actually where sacrifices and that kind of thing took place. And that's where Jewish men could be to present sacrifices. And then you go in the temple, Holy of Holies is in the temple where the high priest could enter once a year. And so that's how the, the temple was structured. It was just magnificent. I mean, covered with gold on that 150-foot face of the temple. And Josephus, the Jewish historian, said that whenever the sun hit it, it almost looked like it was blazing on fire. Like you couldn't look at it with your own eyes. It was just a, a magnificent sight to behold. And we, and we don't know if the disciple that said this expected to get a response from Jesus. But what we do know is that he was probably taken aback by the fact that Jesus said, you think this is a wonderful building? This, this building will not remain. There's not one stone on another here that, that will be left. These, these stones, some of them being over 40 feet long, weighing hundreds of tons, he says, this, this won't last I imagine, you know, it was, it was a quiet walk as, you know, the disciples pondered this going down through the Kidron Valley and up the Mount of Olives. Now, I think just real quickly, if, if you want to pause for a second, the temple provides a, an examination for ourselves because the temple structure was beautiful. 
And yet we had just walked inside with Jesus and it was called a den of robbers. We saw that it seemed like the presence of God was no longer there. And I think it causes us to question, could we be like that temple? Could we care more about how we are perceived by others or the way we project ourselves than what is actually going on within our hearts? As Proverbs 4 says, that the heart is a wellspring of life, that we should guard it. Uh, We consider those who were religious during the days of Jesus. And he said, yeah, their lips honor me, but their heart is far from me. Consider that for a moment. Are you only concerned with the exterior of your life or are you willing to examine and assess? Do I long for the presence of God? Is my heart completely given to the Lord? I think sometimes we can be deceived and say, well, well, of course, I, I mean, I love the Lord because look how much I know about him. But is it applied to your life? Sometimes you say, well, yeah, I mean, I, like my heart is for the Lord because look how busy I am with ministry. Look at these things. But I think it causes each of us, my own self, to ask, I mean, do I, do I want to, to go to a missional community group during the week because I want, I want to be aware of the needs of others and by God's grace, be able to meet them and care for them? Or do I just want people to know that, that I'm there so people can think better of me? Do I want to memorize scripture so that, you know, I, I feel more confident or, or maybe so that I, I'm somebody who just knows a lot about the Bible? Or, or do I want it to renovate my soul so that my affections desire the Lord more than the things of the world? May we not be like the temple that looks beautiful on the outside, but is empty on the inside. And the great thing is, if you feel that, as we all do, whenever we take that assessment, that, that the Lord is quick and kind to answer the prayer, Lord, help me. Help me to become more like you. Help me to change. Help me to love you more. That I would be changed from the inside out. This conversation takes place, and finally... Four disciples get alone with Jesus on the top of the Mount of Olives, and they have the opportunity to ask for this question. We're going to see that Jesus prepares them for the days ahead. Here is the preparation. The first thing he says in way of preparing them is to watch out for counterfeits and misleading signs. Watch out for counterfeits and misleading signs. Here, one of the disciples asks Jesus, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? He wants to know, when is this going to happen? Uh, Can you tell us what signs to look for? And you would almost think that Jesus would use this as an opportunity to give a date, to give a time, maybe to to say, okay, uh, here are a couple signs that you're going to, to look out for. But that is not his immediate answer. No, his immediate answer here is, see that no one leads you astray. Now, before we get to that in a moment, I want to consider that this disciple asks when He asks what, but he doesn't ask the question why. And I don't want to make too much of this, but I think it's worth asking, why would the temple be destroyed? Because ultimately, the temple was a sign from God that was always meant to point to the Son of God. Think about that for a moment. The the gospel is here in Mark 13. You see, we were created to have a relationship with God and what took place in the garden. Sin entered into the world. At that moment, every person uh, for the rest of history would, 
would enter the world dead in their sin, separated from God. And yet, even in that moment, God was gracious to Adam and Eve. He he shed an animal as a sacrifice to clothe them that they could be forgiven and that they could once again enter into his presence. The story of Israel continues, and, and God tells Moses to construct a tabernacle. And this tabernacle would be the place that those sacrifices take place. The tabernacle would be this tent that would symbolize the mobile presence of God dwelling in the midst of sinful people and making a way for them to relate to him through the sacrifice of innocent animals that their blood shed would give them forgiveness and life, the ability to relate to God. The story continues and the tabernacle becomes the blueprint that would lead to the temple. The temple is established once again. It's this place where sacrifices take place It's the place that represents the manifest presence of God in the midst of his people. And then then what happens? Jesus comes. God makes himself known, his presence known in an even greater way, which is exactly why Jesus would say in Matthew 12, 6, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. Because animal sacrifices would no longer be needed. Because Christ would come as the ultimate sacrifice, the unblemished lamb who would give his life, his blood shed, the gift of forgiveness to all who would receive it. He came as the manifest presence of God. The temple would no longer be needed. The next time you see the temple mentioned after this passage is when the veil of the Holy of Holies is torn in two and God says, all can enter into my presence through my son, Christ, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. The temple would become obsolete. We're gonna, we're gonna hear when, what, but what we see is the why has already been answered by Christ. The one who is greater than the temple is here. So how does he warn them? He says, see that no one leads you astray. Verse six, many will come in my name saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. He says there will be false teachers. We see that this is even uh, fulfilled whenever you hear the conversation between Gamaliel and some other religious leaders in Acts 5. He mentions a couple other people who kind of, you know, gained a mass following. Uh, There will be many who are false teachers. Uh, I mean, think about this for a moment. Um, Do you know how to to spot a false teacher? I think typically it has to deal with how they handle scripture. So one, they don't use scripture at all. I feel like that's kind of an easy way to spot that. Two, uh, maybe they misuse scripture. And so, you know, they just kind of pull a verse out of the context, not considering how it would have been received by its immediate audience at all. They say, you know, well, uh, here's this, you know, person who practiced polygamy. So the Bible condones polygamy. And then they just, and you're like, no, like it's very clear from Genesis uh, chapter two that God has created man and woman, marriage to be between one man, one woman. And so you'd say, okay, that's, that's not it. It's the, no scripture, maybe they misuse scripture, or maybe they contradict scripture. And so they would, they would highly emphasize a passage that might say, um, you know, salvation is earned by your works, but then neglect, like in Ephesians 2, where it says it's of no works so that no one may boast. It's completely a gift of grace. And what we see is that even in the time of the apostles, there were false teachers who were seeking to lead astray. Many, many will be led astray. And so even now, as we consider this, we, we say we need to be on guard as they were. Then he goes on and, and he says, there are going to be wars, 
rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. He's saying there are going to be wars. Like, like there will be bad things that happen and rumors of wars, but the end is not yet. He continues explaining this. He says, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Now keep in mind, this is during the time of the Pax Romana, Roman peace. And yet even the empire of Rome would crumble. He's saying, yep, yeah, that's, that's going to happen. You're going to witness that. The, the original readers of Mark's gospel would have, would have seen some, some just terrible things to take place. But what does he say? That these are but the beginning of the birth pains. These are just the beginning of, of the birth pains. These are just kind of the initial contractions of this kingdom that will ultimately be birthed when Christ returns and it is inaugurated. Now, I think about, you know, whenever... Uh, Abby and I were getting ready to have our first son. And, you know, it was Thursday night, the day before he was, you know, that he would be born. Obviously, we didn't know that. Um, you know, we were watching Mission Impossible 4 on our couch. And then she's like, oh, and I'm like, what? You know? And, uh, and so then we're like, okay, like this is happening. Now it was our first child. So we're thinking like, we're going to just go to the hospital at 11 p.m. and we'll be holding this guy like in a couple hours. Uh, little did we know, definitely, uh, well, I mean, I, I don't know anything. Abby probably knew. Um, but, you know, 13 hours later, three hours of like pushing later, and finally we have him. We're holding him. A lot of, lot of birth pain leading up to that. A couple things. Is, I mean, the pain is not pointless, right? You get to hold your child. I think, I think what Jesus is saying here is, as, you know, some people will say, oh, the end is near. Like, you know, look at, look at Revelation, look at the newspaper, like, look, every, it's all happening, like, right now is the time. And Jesus is saying, these are, these are birth pains of what, what are happening. I mean, these are, these are the Braxton Hicks of living in a world broken by sin that will, will one day ultimately culminate in, in the coming of my kingdom. But for now... Don't, don't distract yourself by, by trying to figure it all out, by, by trying to time it to the day. No, wait patiently for the return of the Lord. Prepare yourself. Proclaim the gospel message to a world that still needs to hear it. Persevere with hope because regardless of when I am coming, it's, it's futile to try to time this down to the day because verse 32 is going to tell us that no one knows the day nor the hour. The angels that are in the presence of God don't know how much less with our finite IQs do we truly know to what degree or, or the day that all of this will unfold. What we do know is that we trust the Lord in the meantime. And that's exactly what he tells the disciples here. What is the one charge that he gives in these verses? Don't be alarmed. Don't be anxious. Don't get wrapped up in, in, in this in a way that makes you fearful as you hear wars or rumors of wars. Trust that there is not a single headline that you will read this week that is not unfolding under the divine hand of God. And if that is true for the entire world, how much more can that be true in your life? God is sovereign over it all. So he says, don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed. The next thing that, that Jesus will say here is watch out for coming persecution. This is be on your guard. Watch out for the coming persecution, for they will deliver you over. You see that word three times in, in these verses. You'll be delivered over. 
delivered over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed in all the nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. Here we see that the words of Jesus unfold exactly as he prophesied in the book of Acts. What takes place in Acts 4? The religious rulers are seeking to kill the disciples as they proclaim the gospel message. Uh, That then they are beaten before them, just as they said. In Acts 5.41, as they're leaving the presence of the council, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. They suffered for him, exactly as Christ has said here. Um, we see in, at the end of Acts that Paul, the apostle, stands before Herod Agrippa. He stands before kings. That he says whenever he is shipwrecked, no, I heard from the Lord that I will stand before Caesar himself. And what do we find here? That these are not obstacles to the gospel. They are opportunities for the gospel to take the witness stand and to say, beaten for the name of Christ, he's worth it. Delivered over for the name of Christ, glad to be among that number. To suffer for the name, the one who suffered for me, enduring to the end that I'll receive the prize of salvation, the presence of Christ. Glad to take up that mantle. And the world is rattled by, I hope so sure, a gift so imperishable that as we are willing to suffer for the name of Christ, we show that he is to be treasured above all, which is why the gospel would go forward to the nations. The gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations, verse 10 says. Now, people, you know, try to break down the timeline of this and they say, okay, well, once every single people group is reached, then Christ will return. Other people say, well, in Colossians 1.6, Paul says that the gospel is bearing fruit throughout the whole world. So it's just this kind of like the known world of this time. Uh, now, I have my opinions. Um, some people that I really trust are, you know, split on the way that they read this passage. Here's what I know, that for them who had just walked out of the part of the temple that would have only been available to a Jewish male, and they hear that the gospel is going out to all nations, what Jesus just said is, there will be no more court of the Gentiles. Uh, There will be no more place in which we say, well, you know, God's people can can be here if they do this, but not here. And, And what has just taken place is this unstoppable gospel is being sent to all the nations. That we are to say that the gospel is good news for all people and to proclaim it to the entire world. Uh, We're we're not to try to say, okay, can we manipulate the time of Christ's return by taking the gospel to all the nations? No, we say there are a lot of people who haven't heard yet and I've got time to still share. So I want to proclaim this gospel to all nations and to anyone who will listen. And then in verse 11, Jesus continues. He says, don't be anxious beforehand what you're to say. He's speaking to the disciples here, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. 
Uh, This is not like a proof text for the person who forgot to study their Little Oaks lesson before teaching that Sunday morning. It's not like, well, I don't have to prepare if I'm a missional community group leader because the Holy Spirit's just going to give me what to say in the hour that I need it. No, this is, for, this is for proclaiming the gospel message. And you see this in the book of Acts, whenever the religious leaders are astonished because they're like, these are ordinary fishermen, common men, uneducated, and yet they preach with authority. They perform miracles. They're proclaiming the word of God with the power of God. How does that happen? And it's because the presence of God was in them. The third person of the Trinity took up residence within their soul. And the same Holy Spirit that spoke through Peter in that moment of boldness dwells within you and I. So that we can speak. So that we can declare this gospel message to those around us. Verse 12 shares that family members will will deliver one another up over this. This took place during the reign of Nero. I mean, history shows us that many of those who were convicted, tried, and even put to death under uh, the reign of Nero were, were convicted by people they loved, people that were near to them. Now, while we may not experience this, I think there are many in, in our own church family who have experienced strained family relations or just complete division Because of the gospel message. The gospel brings healing to many households. It can also bring a lot of heartache whenever it's rejected and not received. I think that's a call for each one of us to be a brother or sister to our fellow Christian. To love them well and recognize that we don't all come from perfect families, but for every person who knows God as father, we have another one that the local church is a family, that we invite one another in, that we care for one another, and that God has created this unique family united by the Holy Spirit, knit together by the love of Christ, that we would care for one another even when this is the case. Christ gives the assurance that those who suffer for his namesake, not just for a cause, but for the kingdom of Christ, that those who endure to the end will be saved. This is not an enduring that somehow earns your salvation. This is an enduring that evidences your salvation, that Christ will hold you fast to the end. Is this the end, the destruction that would come in in 70 AD by, you know, the hand of of Titus, the Roman general? Is this, you know, the, the end time or is this the end of that person's life. I think since what was just mentioned here was being delivered over to death, I think it's talking about enduring to the end of your life until your faith becomes sight. That those who endure to the end will be saved. Now, now how do we take this message and apply it this week? Three exhortations, looking to Christ to live as Christians. We look to Christ to live as Christians. Is this not what he himself experienced? That he was betrayed by one he loved, one he had spent three years investing in. Was he not beaten and thrown out? Was he not mocked and scorned? Did he not endure to the end, saying, it is finished, so that we might be saved? Now, now Christ has come to make a relationship with God possible for us by giving himself that we could have life in his name. So how then should we live? First, we live on mission. I want to move from the greater to the lesser. So what did the disciples experience? What do we experience? If Jesus can save the world, then he can save those around you. 
The disciples who preached the gospel, they were ordinary, they were uneducated, they were unimpressive, and yet they declared the message of the gospel with clarity and authority because the Holy Spirit was empowering them. Maybe take a moment to visualize the places that you will be sent this week. The dinner table with your spouse and children, uh, the classroom among fellow students, the house that you live among your roommates, your neighborhood and the neighbors that live next to you. Visualize where God has sent you to share the gospel and begin praying that God would save some. If, if the gospel is so great that it could echo around the world and save many, then why would Christ not delight to save one who is close to you? I think you would. Maybe you share your testimony this week. Maybe you pray that, that someone would come to know Christ. Maybe you just share an encouraging text. I don't know what that looks like, but would we live on mission? Second, have courage. If Jesus can give the strength to die for his name, then he can give you the courage to live for it. If Jesus can give the strength to die for his name, then he can give you the courage to live for it. It's estimated that roughly 70 million Christians have given their life for the sake of the gospel message. In the last decade, there were on average 270 new Christian martyrs every 24 hours. That means that on average, while we worship this morning, it's estimated that about 14 people will be put in a situation in which if they confess that they no longer follow Christ, their life would be spared. But if they proclaim that Jesus is Lord, they will be executed. How can you do that? Because the Holy Spirit enables you to endure to the end. And Jesus gave his disciples the strength to die for his name. I think about Peter. The church history tells the story about Peter, the apostle who was married. And whenever his wife is being led off to be executed as a martyr, he cries out to her, remember the Lord. Can you imagine saying that to someone that you love more than anything, knowing that the presence of Christ is greater than your own? And if Jesus can give the strength to die for his name, then he can give us the courage to live for it. I think some of you right now, in a way that I can't bring specificity, feel the Holy Spirit saying, hey, there's some, some radical things that need to change in your life. There's some things that you need to say no to that you know go directly against my command. There's some sin that you're harboring. There, there are some things that you just need to say, okay, I've been putting this off and today's, today's it. Lord, I, 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 want, I want the courage to follow you. Some of you, they're, they're acts of obedience. So you're just kind of saying, well, not yet. You know, like, like, may, like maybe a couple steps first, or I don't, and, I, and this is the moment where the Lord is saying, no, you reconcile that relationship today. You stop indulging that desire today. You, you make the move to say, Lord, I, I am trusting you with my entire life today. And I've just kind of been hiding behind like, well, you know, I've got kind of these, you know, issues where, you know, like is, is the Bible 100% you know, reliable or Adam and Eve literal people? Like I, and it, this is the moment when you say, either Jesus is Lord or he's not. And I'm following him. If, if Jesus can give the strength to die for his name, he can give you the courage to live for it. Maybe for some of you that's through just confessing him as Lord is, is baptism. I don't, I don't know what it looks like for you, but I'd imagine you probably do right now.
Finally, endure to the end. If Jesus can can enable you to endure to the end, he can sustain you for today and tomorrow. Some of you are certain about the future, uncertain. You don't know uh, about this week or next. You certainly don't know about five years from now. You're awaiting a diagnosis uh, or a test score. Maybe you're kind of rattled right now, uh, crippled by anxiety. Maybe you feel like you've just really blown it and perhaps you've finally overextended the grace of God and this time, whenever you come back to the Lord, he'll just say, no, not this time. Maybe you've experienced suffering and you're like, I don't even know who to talk to about this that would understand. And what I want you to know is that the grace of God is always greater than your sin and that Christ is able to empathize with your suffering because he has suffered as you are suffering and that he is able to come alongside you and to say, trust me, if I can enable you to endure to the end, then you can trust me with today and tomorrow and the next day for my mercy is new every morning. If that's where you're at, if you feel the weight of that, then maybe your prayer is just right now. You would say, Lord, I trust you imperfectly, yes, but, but I trust you. Lord, help me to, to wait with patience at, at your return. Lord, help me to proclaim the gospel message and to persevere with hope. Because one day the hand will strike 10,000 years on a dusty old clock somewhere in Texas. And in that moment, Christ will still be seated on his throne. Our bucket list will be abandoned and useless. The empires of this world will have risen and fallen. Our faith will be sight. And the reality that that brings us to this morning is that the minutes that we have this week matter forever. And so let's live like it. Let's pray.